0: Hello, hello, welcome back to this reading club and actually welcome to all the new people we've had sign up uh, over the past month. Uh, Really happy to see you, happy to have you. Um, Last month, just uh, for those who might have missed it uh, or who hadn't signed up by then, we discussed uh, the Aaron Rice discussions of the PMC, the professional managerial class. Uh, That one was selected by me. This week, uh, or rather this month, is selected by Phil, and he'll introduce it in just a second. And next month is uh, George's selection. Just to be absolutely transparent about how the selection of readings happens, who to attribute blame to, um, and just to make sure there's no kind of corruption going on. So now you know. Um, right, so I'm going to head over uh, to Phil in just a second to explain what uh, we're discussing and his take on it. Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday, the 22nd of July. Uh, you'll be hearing this, I suppose, shortly after, so it'll be out in a day or two. Um we're recording immediately after this, actually, an episode on policing, which is for patrons as well, um, and uh, maybe we'll be referring to things that'll be coming up in that, in that one, and uh, vice versa as well. Um, anyway, that's enough, uh, like transparency about the whole production process, which you probably weren't interested in the first place. So I will hand over to Phil. Phil,
1: thanks, Alex. So today we're talking um, about an article published in the May-June issue of New Left Review by the German sociologist Wolfgang Striek, um who's been involved in a number of debates around the, um, around the role of the state in contemporary, contemporary capitalism, uh, the nation-state specifically. And this particular article is called Engels' Second Theory. It was um, it's the transcription of a lecture that um, Professor Strieg delivered at a commemoration of, um, at a commemoration of the life of Frederick Engels, who was Karl Marx's uh, comrade and um, close collaborator in founding um, Marxian theory in the 19th century. So why this particular piece? Um, why did I decide to put it forward for our regular reading slot? And this is what one of our listeners, um, Nicholas Kersey asked is what the interest in this particular piece was. And I think it's useful to go back to, um, for reasons that I mentioned with Streak's kind of interest in state politics, it's, int- it's useful to revisit some of the classical Marxian understanding of the state. Particularly now, given how the state is coming into prominence again in public discussion in a way that was almost inconceivable, even perhaps even as recently as a few months ago prior to the pandemic. But in the wake of the pandemic and the oncoming kind of financial crash um, resulting from policies to deal with the pandemic, the question of state authority, of the legitimacy of state intervention in the economy, of the state's capacity to um, govern and shape social life and the economy in ways that the market is unable to do so? All of these questions are back on, back on the table in public debate. And in that context, it makes sense to revisit, as I say, some of the classical Marxian ideals of the state. Not least for the fact, I think importantly, that um, the classical Marxian ideal of the state is more than simply using the state to hem in the market or to constrain the market or to supersede the market, but also the classical ideal of um, Marxian socialism was also to transcend the state as well. And so I suspect that um, in the revival of contemporary left politics that the um, this dimension, of the Marxian view of the state is the dimension that's going to be forgotten and that we may well end up in a position whereby it is in fact that the only way to properly understand the functioning of the state or uh, the oppressiveness of the state or the problems of state power that it will have to that for those things we will need recourse to classical Marxian theory because clearly neoliberalism's attempt to shrink the state and to supersede the state have failed so um that's kind of by way of setting up what I think is of interest to talk about the state, Um, specifically speaking to Streak's account of um, Streak's particular account of um, Engels's argument and, um, and how Streak reconstructs it. um, Streak makes the claim that there is a way to, that we can extract an understanding of the state from Engels's theory by which we can develop um, a more kind of nuanced and effective understanding of materialist social development so the role of the state in shaping military technology to technologies of violence of death and of social control mean that the state has had a much greater prominence um, and can understanding the state can give us a much greater insight into um the development of societies over the last 200 years than simply focusing on the organization of the market as per classical kind of marxian political economy and specifically that the centrality of the state according to streak gives us a better picture of the way in which 20th century cold war politics developed than if we're purely focused on marx's understanding of uh, capitalist uh, the cap the functioning of the capitalist economy and that Engels' particular insights derived from his military experience um, in the 1848 revolutions in Germany, and also the fact of himself as uh, becoming a major commentator on strategic and military affairs in the 19th century, that he was an expert and a well-respected um, commentator, public commentator on the wars of the late 19th century. So. All of this puts um, Engels in a particularly effective position to understand the role of the state in material social life, effectively, according to Streak. And one idea is particularly important in Streak's argument, which he calls hypertrophy, which is to say the overgrowth of the state and the overgrowth of state power, um, particularly its um, capacity for destruction or what Streak calls extermination in this um in this article so hopefully i've answered the question of what's of interest to um to why we've selected this particular piece to talk about this um this week and on the first theme then on hypertrophy of the state um so streak makes the point that um the kind of the enormous inflation of state power over the last 100 years and over the 20th century um, we need to understand that in its own in its own dynamics specifically linked to the development of like i mentioned earlier technologies of violence and social control and that's separate from simply understanding the um actions of the market so um what do we make of that
0: yeah i mean i think it's i think it is important and i think even to to roll back a little bit i think we tend to in a lot of contemporary discussions to underestimate the role of force in history i mean i think especially kind of from a both from a like a liberal and a Marxist perspective, actually, there's a tendency to, um, I, especially in a kind of our post-historic times where, you know, wars happen, um, elsewhere. You know that there's things carried out by the state completely invisible to uh, citizens other than as transmitted via CNN or whatever. Um, and so, as a consequence, we've kind of, especially in, you know, in developed countries, you've forgotten what the the role of Force and specifically the role of war in in transforming uh, the state and transforming societies. Um, In fact, you know, I think as as like uh, many people have pointed out, I think Branko Milanovic points this out, but I mean, you know, the only things that really um, redress inequality are revolution and probably even more successfully uh, very destructive war. Um, So it's not exactly something you'd necessarily want to pursue as a socialist, um, but we, I think we, streak's, article is very useful in uh, reminding us um, via angles um, about the role of force in, in, in history effectively. Um, I mean, maybe this isn't used to, like to Phil because Phil studies international relations and, and it's something that it's on his mind all the time. But I think, uh, for many other people, maybe especially because like my background is more as a sociologist, you kind of tend to, tend to forget it. Um, Phil's rolling his eyes at that. I'm not sure why. Um, but you know, anyway, but just, um, Anyway, so that, that that's my that's my starter for ten.
2: Yeah, no, I think the to return to the, the point of hypertrophy, it's it's an interesting claim I think because it's very specific, or it's a specific element of of this massive overgrowth of the of the state. Because on the one hand, you have an undeniable increase in what straight talks about the means of destruction, um, which the state has come to has come to control has come to hold through many things like the army and i'm sure we'll get on to those sorts of points but at the same time i think as we've seen um with covid the state has shown a marked inability to solve citizens problems there's been an i think a, a real um really strong illustration of state failure I mean you could definitely say that America is a failed failed state and it's on the one hand a bit of a joke but also there's something true about it so I think it's it definitely by focusing on force specifically and that element of state growth I think it, it it's important to recenter that because that's ultimately you know what what we should be talking about when we're talking about the
1: state so my concern I guess is that it's um, it's certainly an analytical point which you can measure it in terms of the expansion of um, the role of the state in terms of um, procuring or developing various kinds of technologies. Which, um streak does you could turn it you could measure it in terms of the um, proportion of state spending or public spending the proportion of the state in the overall national economy I mean there are various ways you could measure this so-called hypertrophy. I suppose my concern with it is it's an analytical point but not a critical one because it doesn't really it's not it's not clear that streak is um, you know I mean famously in recent political debates on the role of the state he's firmly come down on the side of you um, uh, Defending the role of the state in contemporary society and its capacity to um, insulate this society from the market. So he talks about hypertrophy, but doesn't seem to develop it as a critical point. I mean, what is the is he saying overgrowth suggests something which is excessive. But at the same time, he doesn't offer any indication of how this excessive growth would be um, problematic or contradictory in any way. And I also I I also just to. I mean, the other element of it, which I think is mistaken, is that you don't actually need, I think, I don't think you need an account of technological development of military violence and um, technologies of social control to account for that hypertrophy. Because in the classical kind of, um, the classical Marxian tradition, um, and specifically Marx's writing on the civil war in France, where he gives his theoretical account of the Paris Commune and the insurrection of 1870, Marx makes very clear that the hypertrophy of the French state of the late 19th century, in his terms, it was nothing to do with uh, the development of military technology of the era, but rather to do with the character of French society itself. And the hypertrophy that Marx identifies in um, in those writings wasn't just about the, um, you know, the power of uh, the military or the standing armed forces, though it was that too, but also the degree of um, what he called the way in which the state clogged up the pores of civil society. The degree of centralized regulation, bureaucracy, oversight, surveillance from um, the central administrative power of the French state. And that this was what Marx um, was criticizing too. But that hypertrophy grew out of the, um, as he put it, the uh, the inability, the unwillingness of the bourgeoisie to rule directly and the incapacity or unwillingness of the proletariat to su- substitute for the bourgeoisie. And in that yeah. uh, in that so kind it just, of contradiction, oh. it's where state power developed. So that the hypertrophy, as Marx identified, was rooted in the rela- social relations of classes rather than technological development per se.
0: Yeah, so I mean, in response partly to Phil, but also something that um, this reading brought up. Um, and in fact, it's one of the questions that we've been asked as well. So, I mean, it's about the question of the of how autonomous the state is and what drives its growth. I mean, there's two separate questions, but they're related because when, one can see, for example, in Streak's reference to the way that a lot of new technology, which drives capital accumulation today, um, comes from the state, you know, it's the military which develops it, it's the military which developed the internet, it's, uh, you know, state funding, which, uh, de- you know, is behind a lot of research and whatever, you know, and you have the typical example that's often wheeled out today by, uh, I think, Mariana Matsukato, who's an economist who points out how much the the role the state played in developing all the components of the iPhone today, you know. Um so there's that, and you can see then in that regard, okay, well, the state clearly plays a role in servicing capital, in acting in the interests of capital in general. Um, and sometimes, indeed, acting in the interests of specific capitals, um, but but more generally in, in capital in general, um, and in, in providing the conditions for capital accumulation. But then there's other things that the state does which don't re- directly relate to that. And there you see the hype. This is where the hypertrophy point comes in or is vi- most visible, um, where you have the development of repressive forces, uh, kind of warfare and and whatnot, um, which don't seem to directly relate to. Um, yeah, capital accumulation, or maybe they do. I mean, maybe that's a question which, um, which we should discuss because something like the Iraq War, you know, which um, at the vulgar interpretation was a war for oil, and therefore, okay, you're just capturing resources. The it seems more likely that it's actually just this the, the U.S. state doing something really stupid uh, and destroying its empire against its own interests, um, and I think that maybe that's a good I- example to to draw upon. Um, in discussing whether the state actually and the, and the state's hypertrophy and the state's development, especially in its repressive and destructive capacities, actually are in any way in service of of capital, of capital accumulation.
2: Yeah, I guess the the question is whether it's the strength of the state or the weakness of countervailing pressures, the weakness of society or civil society, um, because it does seem pretty un, unequivocal that the state's destructive capacities have have increased but whether there's a, um, whether that leads straightforwardly to an increase of state power is, requires obviously a lot of, a lot of intermediate steps um, and a lot of, a lot of things to, to be taken into account like what is the, what are the, the goals that the state is trying to achieve, um, is, are there any beyond management of internal populations, um, I think that, that does come through when he talks about the role of interstate relationships but um, yeah it's not particularly, clear what the context of this suppose of this kind of growth of the, the state is no, and, sorry, and the very more...
0: sorry just one very small thing but it, i mean it, you know I, I one note i liked in it um was that apparently marx had wanted Engels to write a section on um the military on force on interstate relations and for capital for chapter for book one of capital um which he didn't end up doing, and Streak suggests that maybe it was because he was not able to integrate what he found empirically, um, in terms of his research on, on military and, and warfare, um, with Marx's focus on, on, you know, starting from the molecular basis of the commodity and, and building outwards, and that he wasn't able to integrate those. And I think if that was indeed the problem, I think that's something that, which we see reflected in a lot of contemporary debates, um, about the state, um, about, you know, whether it's just, it can be, what the state does can be read off of the economy, to put it in the most crude terms possible, um, or whether the state is its own thing, which does, which follows its own logics.
1: It's strange to read a whole lecture about, um, about Engels's theory of the state without reading about his, perhaps his most famous contribution, not only to Marxian thought, but also to Political theory in all of human history, which is the idea of the withering away of the state. So that concept, which is unique and specific to Marx's account of um, politics, is something that Engels coined, if memory serves. And there is nothing you would think the idea of hypertrophy of the state would be exactly the point at which to draw in this critical element about what it is about um, state power that's problematic and why hypertrophy of the state in particular is something that needs to be um, fought against, and what the idea of withering away of the state would mean in the context of the 21st century. Given the fact that, as I mentioned before, that for Marx already the French state of the late 19th century was already overgrown. But we should move on to the next point, um, which is uh, the claim, the kind of the hardcore analytical claim, which is that um, there is limited analytical power in trying to understand the dynamics of uh, social development through production systems without accounting for the role of the state. and so Engels cites the example of the Cold War, so that this kind of the class struggles of the nineteen sorry, streak street does.
0: The <laughs> Engel was was and a bit of foresighted, but not that much.
1: Yeah. Um, the class struggles of the Cold War are transmogrified into. Um, interstate kind of geopolitical rivalries in the in the 20th century and he makes the claim that engels's theory was better able to anticipate this development in the 20th century um, than marx's focus on the organization of production alone would allow you to do so what do we make of that
2: it's not i think entirely convincing Um, i think there is there is something to be said for taking the the state as a um as an actor or taking seriously the role of the state in class struggle but it has to be put into the context of class struggles and classes um, are national they're they're within national contexts um so to sort of you know leap into this international framework i don't think that's particularly um particularly helpful and i think it's more that the state surely is explained by or the form of the state is explained by the struggle between classes and the the relative positions and of, of strength or weakness that, that they might hold rather than, um, a kind of, um, Olympian view of the struggle between these two, two world powers.
1: Yeah. I mean, and I'd say it's so odd to read about the cold war being used as the example, given the fact that you think, um, the capacity of the of U.S. capitalism to outcompete the, lum, the more lumbering and inef- inefficient Soviet economy. I mean, surely that's the main point of the Cold War, that it can be explained in terms of production systems. Um, a less flexible um, Soviet command economy that's unable to adapt to modern consumer needs is unable to maintain um, spending on defense and on armaments the same way that the U.S. was, while also maintaining living standards. Um, I mean, surely that's a vindicate. The history of the Cold War surely is a vindication of uh, the looking at underlying systems of production to be able to read off actual kind of social and political outcomes rather than thinking about um, the role of the state within that. Which Just to say the state is relevant, but only that the Cold War doesn't seem to prove Streak's claim.
0: I, yeah I think that I think you're right in that i'm I'm trying to untangle this question and think whether in the age of globalization, his point actually is more appropriate um precisely because the state's role in um managing internal struggle um and and conflict over the social product is less important just simply because uh class struggle has abated um in in many places, in most places. Um, and as a consequence, the state turns towards other things that it does. I mean, in terms, specifically, not in terms of managing production, but in terms of um, in terms of repression, um, maybe not even repression is the right way to put it, but in terms of pursuing projects of uh, social control domestically and um, of uh, imperial adventures abroad, um, which maybe sometimes seem to depart from, I guess, the logic of capital. I mean, is that something, what what do you think of that, basically? I mean, do you think that would maybe uh, more substantiate Streak's piece, that the state is more autonomous now in some ways, that the state is kind of doing things, uh, or what the state does is more determined by what it feels it wants to do rather than um, constrained to the same degree by the interests of capital?
2: Well, I think the 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 kind of more widely accepted view of what a state is is it's a a manager. It's it's an it's a kind of there are forces which are larger than than the nation, um, and that these forces dictate the way that things have to go and what the state can do is essentially um, ameliorate the worst consequences of those changes on on some citizens um, and you know just kind of steer steer a course in uh in waters which are which are entirely without outside of its control and i think this is you know it's one of the things that's in some ways partly appealing about strake's whole position is that there is a there's an there's a kind of a looking for some control in the locus of the state and obviously that's becomes quite problematic or quite challenging for him when he looks at the force which under underlies it but i think without the without the nation as the part of the nation state the whole thing i mean where are the you know where 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 are the the people in in this account it just seems a little bit kind of you know although he talks a lot about determinism and technological determinism not being part of historical materialism it does seem a little bit kind of washed out of politics
0: perhaps surely it's a it's a fact of the success of the nation that means that there's no people, um, that the success of the nation has been in cohering people into a unitary body, i.e. one not divided along class lines.
2: Um, well, if, if, if that's an ideological achievement, then that's nationalism or patriotism and not the nation as a really existing group of people within a political community, which is at this point in time necessarily split on class lines um. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think there has there there has to be a, some sort of defensive state capabilities against the neoliberal model or view that there is essentially nothing the state can do. But I don't know if this is exactly the right way to do it.
1: I suppose. Um, I suppose. I mean, this question is to uh, the capacity of the state to act independently of society. Um, that in itself, it seems to me, was part of the classical Marxian critique, um, which is to say that of Marx and Engels more than that of Streak. It's precisely its capacity to dominate society, to act independently of social actors was seen to be problematic. And part of of the alienated character of um, social life per se, the fact that there was this Uh, outgrowth of society that took a political form, but that could dominate society in authoritarian populist, monarchist, nationalist, imperial forms, whatever, well, however it may be. Um, And I suppose, I mean, it seems to me the logic at the moment is to answer Alex's question. It's much more one of disintegration um, so that we don't see the clear, uh, the clear um, exercise of agency to some rational purpose or on behalf of um, Groups in society whose interests are clearly defined, or who understand their interests in a particular way, and that the inability of any particular social group to cohesively um, understand what their own interests are and how they should be politically pursued in any kind of systematic way, or how to build kind of a political political support within society for these various um, whatever these agendas might be, that seems to me much closer to our contemporary picture than this. Um, idea of a state kind of acting, uh, being able to act cohesively of its own accord, you see much more kind of the lack of state authority, um, the overgrowth of state power kind of going with the lack of state ability to command, uh, to command legitimacy or authority within its own population, let alone abroad. And this ties into a later point um, in the discussion. Yeah, George?
2: Yeah, I just have a really quick point about I just had this image of like hypertrophy so you have the state like um a bodybuilder with very developed um, arms for 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 kind of punching things and keeping people down but very underdeveloped legs for running society and solving people's problems um just I know. So I, just so I, I know one particular
0: there. Twitter user who will love that uh, analogy. But anyway, um, what I was going to say uh, in more seriousness in response to Phil's point. I mean, I think that's that's correct. I mean, the, the, the increase of state power and loss of state authority. I think is one of the most fundamental developments in our times. What the the growing incoherence of the state. I mean, it's something that we've discussed uh, probably a number of times, but somewhat indirectly on the podcast. Um, is something that we can, you know, is discussed maybe in terms of like Italianification of politics or Brazilianification of politics or whatever. Just effectively that states which were taken as the, the most advanced and, um, the exemplars of coherence and of a well managed capitalist society, um, seem increasingly less so. And, you know, the, the example that George already raised in regard to the U.S. states handling of COVID, um, is very much to the point. Um, I guess the thing is, is that when th- those Marxist, anal- the classical Marxist analyses of the state, which understood it, um, to in some ways be consequent, to be, yeah, to be, a, the, the way the state worked, to be a consequence of, um, its need to, um, manage social relations and specifically, um, yeah, to provide conditions for capital accumulation, um, were driven by the, the most advanced states of the time. You know they weren't they weren't theorizing on the basis of what um, a backwards Russian state was doing, but they were looking at um, Britain very specifically, um, as well as the the Prussian state, uh, France as well. Um, so I guess one of the things that springs to mind is that if you have the most advanced states and the richest societies having increasingly incoherent states today. Um, Where do you look to theorize the most advanced? uh, You know where the most advanced state formation is right now. Um, If we if we think that countries like France or the U.S. um, and Britain most definitely are in a state of decadence. Um, but you couldn't at the same time point to China and say that, well, look, China's the most advanced um, state formation and that's what the state is now, what the state will look like in the future and what the relationship between state and society will be in the future will be the Chinese state because China remains relatively backwards.
1: And significantly more authoritarian. I mean, the it is the point that Adam Tooze, the um, economist makes, is that China is the only state with the capacity um, to combine kind of uh, the traditional functions of state capacity and power. It has kind of command control over industrial policy. It has the ability to manipulate um, fiscal and monetary policy, as well as having um, command over the resources of its um, society. And so that this gave China the capacity to pull, tug the global economy out of the 2008 financial crash just by the extent of the spending that it undertook um in the chinese economy pulling the rest of the world with it um so it's an interesting question i guess the lack of any um the lack of any obvious paradigm uh about which even to kind of meaningfully to which offers a kind of a paradigm even for meaningful critique is an interesting point but we should move on to um to our final points just um, just,
0: just one just one quick point on on that i mean because i think you know pre-capitalist states or, or states in the process of capitalist development, the absolutist state, you know, you have a unity between political and, and economic power. Um, and capitalism is precisely defined in part by uh, the relative autonomy of the state from, from production. You know, the state isn't directly involved in production. The bourgeoisie does it. Um, and what the hypertrophy of the state is in part a, a process of this of capital becoming After detaching itself and becoming relatively autonomous, I think uh, in today's times where um, profit rates are continually decreasing, um, I mean, not just in today's times, but uh, specifically today, where the state has an increasing role in guaranteeing profits, um, in that the the capital is increasingly dependent on the state. I mean, if you cut away a lot of what the state does, well, you have two, two. There's two different interpretations to this, right? You have the kind of there's a libertarian argument, which is that because the state plays such a large role in production, in in not in direct production, um, but it plays such a large role in in creating the conditions for production today. What it does is it, it keeps alive companies which are now unproductive, you know, kind of get zombie companies and so on, and that you have you don't have the process of creative destruction that you would normally have if the state allowed businesses to be wiped out. That's a kind of libertarian interpretation. I, there's a, a Marxist interpretation, which is just that, know that simply um, because the over-accumulation of capital, uh, profit rates are going to be lower and that it is dependent on the state and uh, capital is dependent on the state now to carry out these things. And maybe China takes it to um, a different a different level in which the state organizes production much more directly.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm not sure the two things are, um, are mutually exclusive though either. Um, the kind of the keeping... That it's specifically though, monetary policies by independent central banks throughout the Western world that are keeping afloat zombie companies. So it's not that the state has directly taken charge of production in these zombie companies, but rather monetary policies designed uh, effectively by banks freelancing as a way of kind of maintaining social control and keeping economies afloat.
0: But not just, is, but not just central banks. It's not, I mean, that, that is a major, uh, an important role. Well, but it, but there's also the whole. The- I mean, neoliberalism is is in effect the state uh, creating new markets where they didn't exist, new possibilities for making profit in areas in education, for example, where it didn't used to be the case, and so on, or uh, the commodification of various areas of life. You know, whether you're selling friendships or um, collecting the collection of data and things like this.
1: Are you selling sorry what's what's selling friendships how would you sell friendships tell us
0: i don't know but i mean you, know, you could you, whatever the, the the monetization and then uh commercialization and i'm not
1: gonna pay you to be my friend man
0: huh no, it's, it's just that i, I just I'm thought that my service a is so, my service is great the services i provide are the best uh sorry go on that's gonna have to be a whole nother tier of
2: patreon um for <laughs> if you want to do that
1: <laughs> We should talk about um, our final theme or um, coming towards our final theme, which is the how far um, the state's role in driving transformation in contemporary warfare with um, Streak. In the, in the article, he comes, he kind of evokes this image of a future in which we'll have kind of battles between Huawei drones and Tesla drones that will be broadcast for entertainment purposes at the same time as kind of staging a geopolitical conflict between China and the U.S., and it's kind of oddly, um, oddly amusing and dystopian at the same time. Um, and I'm so I guess there's, again this question of how far, what is the driver? Is it the development of military, the state's development of particular military technology that um, shapes these kind of processes of geopolitical contestation and international rivalry, or is there are there other forces at work that shape them uh, as well as or? on top of these um, uh, technological mm. state led kind of technological processes yeah
2: i thought this was a good part of the um of the reading right right at the end quite quite evocative this um idea that you have these micro electronic modes of destruction the reprivatization of last, large parts of warfare and in the future you're going to have these high tech mercenaries essentially um so states will be able to subcontract out their um, their their function of um social mode of um extermination. I guess the to, to get onto the the question that you asked though is which is i guess where's the drive for this for this progress coming from? I think there is an independent role of of technology, just the fact that we are able to communicate and coordinate um force in a way that's previously been been more difficult. You can have. You, it's not it doesn't take that much imagination to envisage a an armed force which is entirely robotic and um completely detach one or two steps from from human from human planning um but i guess of course the, the question is how do we how do we and actually that's that's a really good question he asked at the end is can we democratize that can we control a computer server can that be turned against? Um, the ruling class and I think I mean my my thought of this is on this is that essentially these are all tools and this is we're essentially facing the same problem that we have been for centuries which is how do we collectively own and and use the tools I mean the tools are more sophisticated but they don't qualitatively I don't think
1: again I mean I felt again I felt like it's less a transformation in technology so much as a political transformation in how society itself is organized and um how classes relate within society i mean the kind of the capital the use of special forces the reliance on capital intensive modes of warfare on high-tech modes of warfare um you know that stretches back right to the mid-20th century um that was i mean this is the it's underpins the kind of the nazis idea of blitzkrieg it underpinned the um, the bombing campaign launched by the allies against the nazis um, and it functioned throughout the Cold War as well, um, these incredibly kind of these technologically dependent modes of warfare. And it grew out of an unwillingness to um, an unwillingness to place costs to play to bear the kind of political and social costs of labor intensive warfare, because the outcome of that in the at the end of the First World War was revolution. And that's something that all major states of the day wish to avoid that kind of the labor intensive warfare. So I suppose it speaks not just to technological development, or rather, the technological development is shaped by the lack of legitimacy of um, of contemporary states. Their inability to command, um, their to be able to mobilise their citizens along the same way that states were able to at the beginning of the 20th century. And so, it's their in- lack of legitimacy that shapes their enormous invest. Investment in technological ways of warfare that seek to avoid um, that seek to avoid the use of their own forces effectively. And this dynamic kind of plays out across the twentieth century right through into the twenty first, even to the point that it might backfire because this is one of the questions from one of our listeners where they say um, that came through where um they say surely that the um you know the experience of contemporary wars in places like Syria and Ukraine, Shows that at the end of the day, you need people on the ground if you're going to command territory and populations, which is the point of, um, you know, ultimately the point of warfare to be able to have um, a state to have political control, um, to be able to control the security and political, social life and order in a particular territory over a particular population. So, and it's an interesting question, and with I don't think the And I don't think the, uh, you know, that kind of image of uh, Tesla drones and Huawei drones doesn't capture the actual dynamics of warfare in the world at the moment, which do seem to suggest at the end of the day, you still need people who are going to enforce the will of a particular state over a particular territory.
0: Yeah, I'm actually not so sure. And actually, while you were saying that, I was prompted to look up a, a Pew research poll, which I had remembered seeing a little while ago. Uh, interview the number of Europeans or the percentage of pop, Europeans in each country who would be willing to fight for their country should they go to war. Um, and the figures are remarkably low. So the highest is Finland at 74%. Uh, no doubt the Finns worrying about, uh, any, some potential Russian invasion. I mean, that's obviously. Formed historically through through Finn's, um experience, um, you know, over both of the Russia and the USSR, um, you know, Turkey seventy. And 73- they
1: still have conscription as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, and uh, Turkey at seventy three percent. You know, one of the most nationalist countries uh, in the world, a very large standing army, and so on. Oh, but then you go down um, and, you know, you're getting a couple in, in mainly in, in Eastern Europe, some which have experienced direct war. You know, I mean, Ukraine, uh, Kosovo, Bosnia, Sweden, relatively high at 55 percent. But then you're going down and you're below 50 percent pretty quickly. Switzerland, uh, which does have uh conscription, uh, does have mandatory military service, only at 39 percent. Um, you carry down UK, 27 percent. Uh, Spain... Italy, Belgium all around 20%, Germany 18%, 15% in the Netherlands, right? So I mean that speaks very much to Phil's point about uh the state's one the state's lack of legitimacy and its its inability uh to I mean that the, the cohesive force of nationalism um, which streaks reference references early on that you know in reference to the First World War um, that masses of people decided that Um, in the class struggle, I mean, they were better off having a state to protect them rather than uh, to fight the enemy at home. But, you know, that that seems to be a a problem which is very much not faced, at least in, you know, in in European countries. I'm actually curious as to what the numbers would be in the the states. Um, So I, I think that that does speak to the Uh, increasing technologization of warfare. I mean, that's a longstanding trend, but I think what what is happening now where you have not just a move to professional armies, but um, what Streak references specifically subcontracted out armies, the privatization of warfare um, and the kind of impersonalization of warfare.
1: It's the same development though. And and I think, I mean, also there's a difference between asking people whether they'd be willing to die and whether the state is willing to... um, Demand that sacrifice. I mean, this is what you know. I'm sure you'd find more people willing to die um, for the Stars and Stripes than you would say for the Union Jack. But um, the US state has been tremendously uh, carey about um, using large amounts of force, prefers to use drones, prefers to use special forces, had to keep on sending, you know, rotating the same units around and around in Iraq over-relying on the same kind of national, deploying National Guard, over-relying on the same units, just as a way to avoid having to draft people or to expand um, the numbers used. And, you know, also famously, the US allows non-citizens to serve as a way of gaining citizenship. I mean, all of these things speak to um, the lack of legitimacy of states. So the reliance, you know, all of these developments, reliance on private contractors, reliance on drones, reliance on special forces, they speak to declining state authority. So I think, I mean, this is the thing which streak doesn't really address. And we mentioned right at the start, is this dynamic between hypertrophy and decline of authority, and how the two things um, uh, seem to be related. Decline in authority leads to growth of state power.
0: Yeah, I mean, and one last point with regard to that, I mean, is the lack of, uh, I mean, you know, how much how much deadly interstate war have we seen, like of mass destruction, um, recently, you know, you have the U.S.'s destruction of Iraq, um, and its occupation of Afghanistan. But beyond that, I mean, most of the most destructive in a, in a social sense, um, destructive of lives and destructive of societies, um, have been inter, you know, have been civil wars, um, in, in the more backwards countries on, on Earth. Um, so I, the, the, the role of technology in this and the role and the ability to be quote unquote surgical, um, of course, you know, that's, there's a lot of um, mystification and like ideology driving those ideas of being sort of surgical interventions. But nevertheless, you know, you're, you're basically sending in a drone to blow up a wedding, um, or accidentally blow up a wedding rather than um, occupying a whole country, um, and having to forcibly it- subjugate it. So, oh, and, so, 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 so hang on, it's just one point. point, what the point that I'm getting at is that, warfare might be and you know might be less destructive but it's also more deadly it's more able to guarantee death in the way i think if you look across history it's more able to guarantee death and maybe exercises um a more of a veto power because of that threat um, than it used to
1: i'm not sure that's true because but then you have asymmetric war,
0: yeah I was just going to contradict well, myself and saying that yeah you know you have uh, you have uh, the Houthis in in Yemen uh, able to um, actually hold their own against a much more funded and and stronger uh, Saudi army. So I mean, I'm just contradicting yeah. myself. You, do you have a do you have another
2: point to contradict yourself again and achieve? <laughs> synthesis or i just i I mean i just just to just to comment on those those figures of of you know citizens or people willing to fight for their country i mean it's there's another important context which is that the only thing we can really see um fighting for your country or at least in western europe to to look like is going overseas somewhere and you know invading a foreign country there's no context of
1: probably um, with mosques and deserts in it Quite yeah, quite
2: possibly. And um, there's no real context of, of um, I guess, live class class conflict, which could could mean that we could be defending, you know, the UK from um, from the White Army um, or its equivalent, if the situation's reversed. Um, yeah, there's no there's no kind of um, real feeling that you you would be defending a, a sort of a revolutionary state from from external. Um, forces and i I guess this is kind of related to the idea that you wouldn't want to have or that there is something obviously gained um in the management of of class tension in having you don't have people with with guns who can be who can be kind of made aware of the the feeling of i guess force which they which they possess instead it's a, a bit more um removed and um yeah surgical i mean it's it's a it's a solution of a of a of a a problem that the state has rather than a, a kind of collectively um, decided um, display of defensive or offensive force.
1: Well, I was going to tie this, so I was going to move us to a final point, but also tie it into Alex's. Um, the majority of violence surely comes not from hypertrophy of the state, but from the disintegration of state power and authority. I mean, that would seem yeah. to be the lesson of. If you think of like um the most lethal kind of cycle of conflicts in the contemporary era would be in Eastern Congo, in that kind of border zone um, uh, around the Great Lakes region of Africa. And that's essentially the collapse of kind of of um, society, not a not a geopolitical context, contest between um heavily heavily armed kind of um, heavily organized states. But rather the disintegration of society, ethnic ethnic kind of ethnic conflict, um, naked kind of commercial competition over minerals in the region, and the disintegration of the central state in the in the in Af you know well that kind of story in Africa itself, and a story that repeats in places like Syria, Afghanistan, and so on. So. Again, the kind of the actual kind of dynamics of contemporary violence don't seem to easily fit onto the idea of hypertrophy, but rather state collapse and failure. And even maybe social disintegration, kind of uh, even a kind of a deeper level of molecular disintegration that goes beyond the simple kind of absence of centralized authority. Um, And I guess this takes us to a final point, which is... uh, the An example that Streak ends on, which is talking about um, a complaint from a he uses the example of a complaint um, from an elite Israeli commando unit um, saying the uh, kind of exposing the emptiness of uh, the need for maintaining kind of um, Israel's sense of vulnerability, I suppose, given the sheer kind of capacity of the Israeli state to disable any um, Palestinian resistance, um, its capacity, its overwhelming capacity to disable any attempt to kind of build any um, coherent functioning Palestinian collectivity that would be able to mount a m- meaningful challenge to Israeli military and political domination of the Palestinians in the occupied territories. And that seems to me to, um, to speak to this question To a deeper political question that isn't a question simply of technological capacity or how high tech your special forces are, but this question of um, generating collective power and generating collective legitimacy and how far societies are able to coherent, to mobilize themselves around a coherent political vision that commands legitimacy and to generate that kind of sense of uh, collective solidarity, to generate political power effectively that can be translated into military power. And it's that that seems to me uh maybe um the central question. And the question in Pal- the failure of the Palestinians to do that seems to me to be a more important than, you know, how effective Israeli drones are or how effective Huawei drones would be in some war in the future.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's clear that states really struggle to do this, to have any um collective project that can can unify their citizens and and, well at least that was the case in the the end of history period which you might argue is 1989 to 2016 or 2020 um but yeah I guess that's the hopefully something which is going to to change because you know there can't be a left there can't be a left government without or left project without kind of I guess addressing some of these these challenges both the both the technological ones but also the political ones the ones around around you know forming a, a coherent um political project which which unifies people and which um gives the state some sort of legitimacy to exercise power in a, in in a number of different fields including including economics
1: do you want to come in, Alex? Well,
0: I mean, just a very brief point on that. One, I mean, if you want the state to cohere people, then presumably you'd be as well an advocate of one of these arguments for the state, um, doing conscription, national service of some sort like this, um, to actually create those, uh, solidaristic bonds, um, and kind of breaking up difference in, in, by, uh, by through an integrationist project. Um, I'm not saying I am, but I think it's also, Maybe always worth uh, exploring as a as a thought experiment. Um, but the other point yeah, about having yeah having standing citizens militias like having everybody
2: but
1: with the state but the state a citizen, not a standing citizens militia because uh, the point the yeah, classical um, Marxist program was to abolish standing armies.
2: I mean, the, yeah. In, well, maybe you need it in, in the interim an, until until there's a withering away.
1: But, but, no, but, uh, but we're talking uh, about the capitalist the process of the withering away of the state, there. But I mean. We're getting slightly off track but i suppose the um it has a direct bearing i suppose on questions of what popular protest and the relationship between civil society and the state looks like um in popular protest today not least because this kind of overlaps and intersects with the um radical demand that has had so much traction on social media at least of um uh, abolishing the police or defunding the police and we wanted to. I mean, this was raised by one of our listeners, um, Gabriel Goffman, um, which was talking about the uh, character of protest um, in the U.S. at the moment, um, and also the question of how far a um, how far popular insurrection could be crushed by. A overly kind of mighty militarized state or how far it would be possible for popular protest and insurrection to succeed against the state. Um, and I suppose this question, you know, I mean it's a, it's an abiding it's an abiding question for radical politics, for revolutionary politics. Um, and one interesting and I mean it's particularly interesting in the context of the US, I suppose, because um precisely because the classical Marxian idea of um, state power. Or the ideal of state power draws on this kind of Swiss-American tradition of a militia. So the um, question, I suppose, raised by by, um, by Gabriel Goffman is tensions specifically between the um, federal level and the national level and how far it would be possible for um, state National Guard, which is, I suppose, closer to people in a particular context, than compared to the remote kind of federal government. And he's thinking precisely of what's happening in um, in Oregon and in Portland, with the rumours, and I'm sure listeners have seen it, about um, security forces without any um, uh, obvious uh, insignia rounding people up randomly off the streets, that how far that kind of tension could play into the dynamics of popular protest so state level authority versus federal level authority and it's a question it's an interesting question which I don't have um, which I don't have uh, any uh, stock answer to but only I suppose to say that it goes back to a central issue of the fact that any popular any popular movement would need to win the um, loyalty, of people who within the state security itself. It would never be able to succeed simply by seeking to overthrow um, or to directly kind of confront state power, but would require that people, um, that the state security itself begins to side with popular protest. And that dynamic might be made easier if you have tensions between um, remote state power at the federal or central level, and at the more local level, as you do in the states, um, or it may not. But I suppose it's an open-ended question.
2: Yeah, there's also so, the the context of states' lack of in in general, lack of legitimacy, lack of authority, and inability to mobilize um, to mobilize people for, you know, for the purposes of 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 um, exercising force. So there is a there is a kind of, I guess a, uh, it's not all doom and gloom. I think the you know, the, the reality is of course that the the means of social control in at least in terms of the application of force that one trained and equipped person can can meet out, you know, that's increased exponentially. And so there is there is a feeling of of massive state um state power. And I guess the the question is whether whether the gap is there to 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 mobilize people and to, to kind of I guess have a, have a project which achieves mass um mass consensus and mass support because yeah it seems like this the state is is quite, it's quite strong but brittle in this in this context in this area
0: yeah, I don't want to say too much more on this because I think uh, we'll be discussing it in you know directly and in more depth uh, in something we're about to record now, um which will be an episode which is uh, coming out next week will be tuesday the twenty eighth on on policing specifically um so I suggest we we park that discussion uh, here, just because we'll we'll deal with it in more depth in just a little bit.
2: Oh, give give people a trailer for what's coming up. Next. Yeah, exactly. Next exactly. time on Alpha Bunga Bunga.
0: So uh, we have one final question, right? Uh, and that question is uh, from Nicholas Kiersi, which um, we made reference to earlier on. He, there's a second part to his question, um, which is uh, he. Let me let me just explain a little bit the terms because he he says that. Um, Uh, that Streak uses, uh, adopts Pulansas's anti-instrumentalist reading of the state. And I'm just going to unpack that because uh, what Nicholas is interested in is how that reading relates to being pro-Brexit as everyone on Bunga was pro-Brexit. So just just briefly, um, these terms relate to a debate that was held in the 1970s between two Marxists, um, between uh, Ralph Miliband and Nico Pulansas, about what the state was, and and to put it in the in the most basic terms, about how free the state was, or how free state managers were to pursue policies that conflict with the interests of uh, economically dominant classes. Um, basically, how uh, you know how how democratic can the state be? How influenced can the state managers be to pursue um, yeah to pursue policies which may eat into profits, for example. Um, and I mean, a lot about the de- debate is overstated, and the positions have kind of hardened well beyond what maybe they're, uh, they're the people who advance those arguments intended. But, but basically, you have a, a structuralist. Understanding of what the state is, um, which emphasizes how unitary the state is, um, that it's um, structurally determined, that it's a, it has, it's a kind of more deterministic reading, um, and is based on a kind of more theoretical understanding of what the state is. And Miliband's version was more empirical, um, looking at the way that the state is constructed and that it's uh, more divided and emphasizes more the role of agency versus structure. I mean, that's put it in the in the most um, basic sense. Um, so. Nicholas uh, suggests that Streak has a Polansian or anti-instrumentalist reading of the state, i.e. that the state does what... Capital tells it to. I mean, not directly, but that the the, the state is very constrained by capital. Um, but that the bre- the pro Brexit view. I mean, the left view of Brexit is that the state can be um, made more democratic. That, for example, by leaving the EU, you can redem out de- redemocratize the state. Um, or you know, yeah, yeah, effectively redemocratize the state. Um, from its kind of very, kind of, I guess, neoliberal form that it takes under um, under, the, under the EU. Um, and that, Nicholas puts the point to us that that, that would be a contradiction, wouldn't it? Um, if you see the state as just the capitalist state and which can't pursue, for example, social democratic policies or, or policies that would run contrary to the interests of economically dominant classes, what's the point of doing something like Brexit? Um, what's the point of of maintaining illusions of uh, of of making the state more democratic?
2: I think that misses the point about brexit. um fundamentally, the um, the idea was not about a state transformation, but about political question, about mobilization and about democratic will. And I mean, I think the
0: democratic will if know, that the, presumes the state's going to listen to your to the democratic will
2: well, having a purely a view that the state is just going to function straightforwardly in the interest of capital seems seems to basically say, well, then what's the point of popular politics? What's the point of um, <clears throat> any sort of political intervention? I don't, I don't sort of.
0: I don't. Well, that, that would be a really revolutionary approach.
2: I might be missing something.
0: That would be Correct. a revolutionary approach, right? Where you say there's no point in participating in, in elections. That you need to revolutionary overthrow of the state. Anything other than that do you, is just. How oh, do you that
1: isn't a, how That is anarchist. That is just anarchist. So it's that kind of idea of um, where such uh, or ultra leftism. Um, you know, either anarchism or ultra leftism, which, as in these debates have played out in, um, in kind of second and third international politics. Of the early 20th century, so the idea that um, uh, withholding yourself from public, from actual existing politics, or from the public sphere, or from existing forms of parliamentary activity, and from the institutions of liberal democracy, is um, immediately kind of more radical or more revolutionary. Is you know, I mean, it's uh, I don't think it's it's an old debate and one which I don't think. Uh, I think it was better the first time round, rather than recast in the terms of um, uh, the Polantis and Millard band debate of the 1970s. And I'm not sure that there's much to be gained from the kind of the forced contrast between a um, this idea that the state has some capacity to act versus the idea that it's purely kind of a management committee for for the bosses. Um, getting trapped in the kind of in that cleft stick doesn't seem to me to meaningfully account for politics or um, or social life over the last 40 50 years
2: no, I, th- I think you can still be you can still be clear-eyed about that the state in a crisis is going to back the interests of capital even if you have a social democratic government unless you have a, a truly revolutionary <laughs> leadership of society um, but that doesn't fully answer the answer the question I mean then it doesn't seem like there's going to be any path to revolutionary politics that doesn't go through the people and doesn't go through extending democracy and if you're not prepared to defend it when you see it in brexit or the gilets Jaunes, then you're not gonna you're not gonna short circuit it um by just replacing the state i think i think that much is obvious
0: all right well maybe we should uh, leave this here no doubt uh, many of you may want to come back to us on on these and feel free to you know comment on uh on the Patreon page or elsewhere, um, and we'll try to pick these up. Maybe next time um, we'll be back with one of these in a month. We will try to announce it as soon as possible. What, what the reading will be on, um, and uh, as I said, we're going to be disc- we're going to be recording right after this. Uh, our episode on policing, which will be out next week on Tuesday the twenty-eighth. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed it. Let us know what you thought, and that's it for now. Catch you later. Bye bye.